Good morning. I'm so glad to be back, though it was awesome being able to hear Matt the past couple weeks. So he did a really good study on the tabernacle. If you didn't listen to both parts, then go on the podcast and listen to And that's what I did. So while I was eating lunch one day at work, I listened to the first part, and then I got to hear him on Friday. And so I learned a lot, actually. So I've taught on the tabernacle every single semester at the Christian Learning Center. And for them, I tried to just give them, you know, a pretty broad, sweeping um, introduction to it. But you got into some interesting details about the Ikea wood and the almond blossom. That was really interesting stuff. So anyways, go and check that out. Today, we're going to talk about typology, some still. Uh, A little bit more broad than we got into on the tabernacle, but we'll get into that in a little bit. But to review, it has been a couple weeks since I taught on this. So for those who are listening, I just want to recap very slightly before we move on. We talked about the history of eschatology among Christians. Eschatology is the study of the end times. And in the early church at the very beginning, as you would expect, right after Revelation was written, the early church for the most part adopted the same style of interpretation that is according to the plain sense of the book. And if anybody read Revelation, you come away thinking, okay, well, there's going to be a literal 1,000 years following this tribulation that's described by the Apostle John. And that's what his disciples taught, the people who actually knew him. Uh, That's what the early church fathers believed for the first 200 years about. But then we start to see some new ideas coming around. These ideas were influenced by false doctrine. Uh, So in Alexandria, that was a hub of lots of different religious schools And the Alexandrian mindset brought in an allegorical approach. Um, There was this idea among Alexandrian Christians that anything physical was bad, like the physical is bad. And uh, they probably got that from some references in the Bible that talk about the flesh as a negative thing. But of course, the flesh has been corrupted as it was originally made by God. There was was nothing wrong with it. The creation went through a fall, as we know from the book of Genesis. But influenced as they were by some false schools, of thought like Gnosticism and Neoplatonism, they came up with this idea the physical's bad. And since the thousand year reign was often depicted as, okay, Christ is reigning physically. So he is on the throne of David in the earthly Jerusalem. The nations, they're literal nations of people in their natural bodies, and they're coming up to Jerusalem and they're worshiping, and there's going to be a new temple. And there's going to be temple offerings as well. All that stuff just didn't sit well with the people who wanted to overly spiritualize everything about the end time. So you had some people like Clement and Origen who were of that Alexandrian school. And uh, they introduced some problematic ideas. But since they were very well respected by a lot of people, those ideas uh, took took on some momentum. And then later on, Augustine... He adopted this same way of thinking about the millennium, that it was a spiritual millennium. It wasn't a literal millennium, and it it really pictures Christ's victory over Satan, God's overcoming uh, death and sin. And today, people who hold to this view, they're called amillennialists, and they believe that right now, we are already in the millennium. The millennium represents Christ beating Satan. And so that thousand-year period is an age in which we're currently experiencing. But the early church fathers believed that it was an age that had not yet come, and there would have to be a tribulation first 
before Christ comes and defeats the Antichrist, Armageddon takes place. And then you have the thousand years. So uh, there was a huge shift after Augustine. And he also introduced a lot of bad ideas. Uh, so I've read some of his stuff. I had to when I was in seminary. I found that his earlier writings were a lot more reasonable. So he believed in free will at first. Uh, he actually argued against the pagan heretics that denied free will and believed that fate determined everything. There was no freedom of choice. So he argued for free will. But later on, he changed his mind. And he adopted that deterministic outlook that Calvinist have borrowed from. So many people have referred to Calvinism as being Augustinian because it's based on a lot of his later writings, Augustine's later writings. Uh, he also introduced some allegory in the book of Genesis. So those days of creation, the first people to suggest that those days might not be literal 24-hour days, that was Augustine. And so today there are some people who are old earthers who will bring up Augustine because he's so respected uh, among the church fathers. And so they'll try to use him for support. But that was very, it was very aberrant. Okay. That's not something that other people believed. He's known for introducing some of these new, but not so good ideas. And of course, since we're talking about the end times, he introduced uh, a more popular version of amillennialism. Uh, if people didn't just jump on the bandwagon with Clement and Origen, for the Middle Ages, Augustine's influence was so much so that there really weren't a whole lot of premillennialists. Uh, or else there were, they just didn't have their writings proliferated and passed on. So when we look at the Middle Ages, most people fell in line with the amillennial view. Now, that doesn't mean there weren't people who believed in a rapture. So a lot of people would say, well, if they're all amillennial, then they look at Revelation as spiritual and they wouldn't believe in a literal rapture or a literal tribulation. And that's not true. They were kind of weird. There were some early amillennialists who lived at the same time as Augustine and in some cases a little bit before. And uh, they taught this idea that there was going to be a spiritual millennium and and it's kind of confusing exactly how they uh, understood this and there's more to be learned. Okay. These church fathers, there's a lot of stuff they wrote that hasn't been translated yet for people like me. I don't speak Latin. I don't read Latin. So a lot of this stuff hasn't really been filtered down to uh, people in church, but uh, it's coming out that apparently there were some amillennialists didn't believe in literal millennium, but they actually believed in a literal tribulation period. They believed in a literal antichrist. Uh, they thought it was future. It hadn't already happened. So this is not something that's already been fulfilled. And they did believe that the rapture of the church would take place before the Antichrist uh, swayed the world into what was called atheism. So Eusebius actually has a quote here that uh, the righteous would be gathered into the heavenly ark of God before all the ungodly have been made atheists by the Antichrist. So they believe that before at least the appearance of the Antichrist on the world stage, Christians would be taken out and then they would be brought back when Christ returns at the end of this tribulation period. And then there would be a general resurrection of the dead, the righteous to everlasting life, the unbelievers to the second death. And they didn't believe that there was going to be that interval period of a literal 1000 years. So it's like they, they kind of picked and chose what in Revelation they would adopt literally. So they saw the rapture and they saw the tribulation and said, well, we'll accept those as literal events that are in the future. But when they saw the millennium, they downplayed the significance of it. And so that's some information there that indicates a rapture was distinguished in the church fathers. There are a lot of people today. If you 
get on a Facebook forum, okay? Because people are a lot more bold on Facebook forums. If you're talking to someone in person, maybe they wouldn't, you know, jump right to this. But uh, there are a lot of people who they smear dispensationalism online. I've encountered that a whole lot. And they'll say that if you believe in a pre-trib rapture, you're getting that from the 1800s. So John Nelson Darby is the first guy to come up with this. And so it's a new idea. Why didn't anybody else talk about the rapture? If that's what the Bible plainly teaches, why doesn't it, or why doesn't it show up before John Nelson Darby? Well, it does. It does. It's just a matter of ignorance here. There are people, um, as I list up here, uh, Ephraim of Syria, Irenaeus, Eusebius. These are people who, while their end times theology may not be perfect, okay, I'm not claiming that mine is. There's a lot of things that, you know, I still have questions about and I'm learning every day, but uh, their end times theology may have some flaws here and there, but at least we can give them credit for believing in a form of the rapture. So there are actually some ancient church fathers to teach this. So anyways, that's the history. So now let's talk about things today. So what's the opposition? The pre-trib rapture view that I hold, the premillennial view that I hold, is not really the norm anymore if you were to go to a seminary, okay? Uh, I remember when I went to seminary, uh, went to Truett McConnell, and there were a lot of people who questioned the pre-tribulational view of the rapture. Uh, so much so that they mocked it and said, that's just left behind theology is what they call it. The only reason you believe that is because of those popular novels and they'd say they're full of so many errors and it's just fiction and that's all that the pre-trib rapture is. That's the, the vibe that I got from a lot of fellow students. Uh, I did have some professors who were a lot more favorable to this idea of a literal millennium but the idea of a pre-trib rapture, I had some professors that weren't sold by that. So in the higher learning institutions, there's less of a push for a pre-trib rapture, even places that used to be more for it, like Dallas Theological Seminary. There's a lot more change going on, uh, compromise, I, I would say. But uh, in many churches, of course, Baptist churches around here, you're going to run into this view, and it's probably the dominant one, the pre-trib rapture view. But there are a lot of people that are abandoning it now, and amillennialism, spiritualizing revelation, is becoming a lot more popular. And doesn't that kind of fit with the whole trend in our culture to relativize everything, to take something that's so clear and black and white and to mix it around a little bit and say, well, I'll take this, but I won't take that. Maybe that's just your interpretation. And that's the sort of thing that we have going on today. Um, yeah, exactly. Does it really say that? And that's one of the things that the devil, of course, said um, to uh, Eve in the garden. Now, some of the features of modern day opposition to this understanding of the end times is uh, newspaper exegesis is what they'll call it. So there have been since the 60s a lot of people who would say the rapture is going to happen on this day. Okay, and before the 60s, but really in the 60s, you had some some books published that were really popular by people like Hal Lindsey, for example. Okay, very popular. He did not say that. Okay, and so I've read several of his books, and he does say I think it's reasonable to believe that you know Christ could come back, you know, in the 80s. Okay, he was writing this in the 60s, and then when the 80s came around, a lot of people would say, "Hey, you were wrong," and he said, "Well, if you go back and read what I wrote, I didn't actually say it was going to happen." He he said this is one particular interpretation of the olive tree budding in Matthew 24, and I'm saying that it's reasonable, but we'll have to find out. So I think that people are very uncharitable towards him. I've even seen some pre-trib rapture people who would actually critique him for saying that he you know, set these dates and it didn't happen. But 
He simply said it's reasonable. I personally think it's reasonable that uh, we're going to reach year 6,000, okay? Historically, I think we're going to reach year 6,000 pretty soon. And I'm not setting a date because I don't know what it is. But uh, I know that there is this pattern, I believe, in Scripture. It was a Jewish belief and an early Christian belief that after 6,000 years, Christ was going to come back and set up his millennial reign, which would be the 7,000, a Sabbath day. And I think we're really close to that. However, if we get past that point, it doesn't happen. I'll say, okay, well, my opinion, which is always what it was, was clearly incorrect, but I never said that it was going to happen, okay? Uh, but they'll say, newspaper exegesis is looking at the news and saying, look at prophecy coming to pass. And they critique that because they'll say, you've been saying that for a long time and nothing's happened. But I still believe that newspaper exegesis is not inherently a bad thing. I think it's actually a good thing because Christ appealed to it. There were lots of things going on back in the day when John the Baptist was preaching and Jesus was preaching. The whole countryside was astir. We have non-Christian Jewish historians mentioning this because it was such a big deal. If you're writing a history on the Jewish people, okay, you pick the stuff that's most important. Well, they mentioned John the Baptist. They mentioned Jesus. They mentioned James, brother of Jesus, because they were very influential. So Jesus said, look, this is happening in your midst. You've heard about this. Okay, even if you weren't there to hear me say this, or you weren't there to see me heal the blind or heal the lame, okay, or if you weren't there to see Lazarus come out of the grave, you've heard the news. And this news points to a reality. Prophecy is being fulfilled. And if you can look at the sky and you can say it's going to rain soon, then you can look at the news and say prophecy is happening. So there's nothing inherently wrong with looking at the news. Now, of course... Don't date set, because the Bible does say we don't know the day or the hour of Christ's return. But if we're looking at the news and we see, hey, look, this is stuff that's happening now in our time, and it highly resembles the things that Christ talks about regarding the end. Maybe we're really close, okay? There's nothing wrong with that. So I think that uh, that's uh, an unreasonable argument that critics use today. Uh, they also believe in the kingdom now. They'll say, quit looking at this pie in the sky return of Jesus. Think about his power now. He's already come. He's in the church. There are a lot of people uh, today called preterists. They believe revelation's already been fulfilled. Some people are so extreme and heretical, I would say, that they would deny that the second coming is literally going to happen. They'll say, well, perhaps it will, but they'll say all this stuff about Christ's return pertains to 70 AD when the Romans invaded and they destroyed the temple. They'll say when Christ talked about his coming, that's what he was talking about. And it's a heresy because it flat out denies the historic teaching of the church, which says that we're all as Christians looking forward to the return of Jesus. And it's visible. It does. Yeah. It doesn't make logical sense either, and we'll talk more about that later on as we continue our study, but that is something that people believe is happening now, uh, that uh, you have this change between people who believe that Christ's coming is future and a lot of people who are thinking about his coming in terms of the kingdom now. Like, he's already come, 70 AD happened, he's in the church, he's been in the church since the first century, we have all this power now. If we want to see change, if we want the world uh, to be conquered, so to speak, then we have to, as Christians, claim this kingdom authority and do our job. And it appeals to a lot of people because it takes the control and it places it in their hands rather than putting it in God's hands. If the second coming is not determined by what we do and it's all according to God's plan and his timing, then that makes people very uneasy because the world seems to be unraveling around us. And whenever you feel like you're going underwater, what do you do? 
you really start trying to swim to get to the top. Uh, but when it comes to this subject about the end times, we as Christians simply have to trust in Jesus and say, look, it could get worse, okay, for America. Let's just be real. Uh, before the rapture happens, we don't know how bad it's going to get. All we know is it's Jesus who's in charge. Our job as Christians is to look forward to his coming because it hasn't happened yet. And as faithful believers, we're warning people. We're being priests. This is not the home that we should get used to. I made a post about this uh, early this week. People treat the earth like it's their dream home. Like we got to make our lives comfortable here. Even Christians who I think are, are well-meaning. They want to change society. Let's change the government. Let's, let's change to where we have all of these Christian nations and we kind of have another Christendom, but a better one you know, than the one we had in the Middle Ages. That's not our hope. Our hope is Jesus coming. He's going to be the perfect king of kings and justice will reign. And that reign won't happen until we have what? A tribulation period of seven years where mankind goes as we expect them to go, as we're watching. It seems like mankind is going back to Babel. Because that's exactly what is prophesied. And so when Babel takes place, are, are we just going to be able to go around Babel and evangelize and everybody's going to say, oh yeah, we should stop building this tower. We should set up a kingdom dedicated to Christ. So that way when Jesus comes back, he's like, well, good job, guys. <laughs> I guess I'm not needed here. Y'all did a good job. No, it's going to get worse before Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom. And that's our hope. So uh, that's another feature of the opposition today. And uh, the spiritualizing of the text, it's nothing new. Uh, if I was to go and uh, point, uh, point out a verse in Revelation and say, look, okay, it's talking about Babylon, mystery Babylon. Who is this, this scarlet woman? Okay, what does this pertain to? Okay, um, a lot of people would say, oh, that's, that's not something you should take literally. And, and Christians who believe in the premillennial viewpoint, we believe that we should interpret God's word at face value. So in Genesis, when it says six days, that God created everything, he did in six days. In Revelation, when it talks about those two witnesses preaching for three and a half years, how long are they going to preach? For three and a half years. Okay, we don't spiritualize things unless there's a really good reason to do so. Um, and so, in the 70 weeks of Daniel, yes. And in that case, it's not even completely spiritualized. Those, those weeks, they do have a meaning. Now, I think there's a gap. Okay, so you have the 69 week. That's when Jesus showed up 2,000 years ago. And obviously there is a gap. The 70th week hasn't started yet. But when the 70th week begins, how long will it last? Seven years, okay, exactly as Daniel 9 teaches. So we do believe in interpreting Scripture literal. And I think that it all comes back to this. It's Israel. It's Israel. People don't like the idea of God loving Israel, even though Israel doesn't love him. Because it's a fact that right now most Jewish people do not believe in Jesus. And so Christians cannot swallow this idea that God is keeping his covenant to them, even though they don't deserve it. But that brings us to the point, okay? Israel is a picture, okay, of the church. Israel is a type of the church. Now, this is what happens. <clears throat> if God uses Israel as an illustration and he makes a promise to them, and he says, I'm making a covenant with you. This is the covenant that God made with Abraham and his offspring. And let's say God abandons Israel. Well, then he's abandoned the covenant he made with Abraham. And if that covenant was meant to picture the church as Paul and the New Testament authors very clearly teach, then that means that God will abandon Christians if they prove unfaithful. So this, this is one of those things that ties into eternal security. Look, I think it's ironic 
that many reformers, they will say, oh, we believe in a, a form of eternal security. They do. Calvinists do. Perseverance of the saints. They think that true Christians won't fall into egregious sin. Uh, but they do believe that Christians will not lose their salvation. So we have that common ground with Calvinists. But ironically, they will say God replaced Israel with the church. God has cast off Israel. There's no longer covenant with them. And it's because they rejected Jesus. It's like, okay, but do you realize if, if God rejects Israel because Israel rejected him, then that covenant is not unconditional. It's not grace anymore. And it's meant to picture that. So uh, over here, they're trying to hold on to grace. But over here, they're unknowingly rejecting the clearest picture of grace in the Bible because Israel, okay? The Old Testament's bigger than the New Testament. The New Testament's based straight off the Old Testament. I, I read something online that disturbed me. Andy Stanley has come out with this new book, and it's so anti-Old Testament that I'm like, how did, how did he have the boldness to write these things down? And uh, you can't read the New Testament without reading the Old. And it's about Israel, Israel, Israel. This place that we're going to spend eternity in forever called the New Jerusalem. It's called the New Jerusalem. Because it's based on the old Jerusalem. Now, it's not the same. The old Jerusalem foreshadows and points to the new one. And when it talks about the people of God and the new heaven and the new earth, okay, that people of God is obviously much broader than Israel. Like Paul said, there's neither Jew nor Greek in the church. Um, but Israel's, Israel's covenant with God or God's covenant with Israel, to me, is the clearest picture that God will not cast off Christians even if we prove to be unfaithful. And so I will hold on to this belief until the day I die because it concerns my salvation. Like when I see Israel, I see me. And if God casts them off, then is he going to cast me off? Because I've proved pretty unfaithful as well. And salvation in that case isn't based on uh, grace through faith. It's based on works. And so uh, Israel, and this is where we'll wrap it up. I'll uh, have us look at maybe one passage today. Uh, but Israel is a type of the church in two ways. Israel is called the bride. And the church is called the bride. In Jeremiah 3.14, it talks about God divorcing Israel. But then it mentions even though God would divorce Israel, he would remarry her. And this is one of those things we talked about on a, a Friday night. We did a Bible study. But if our, if our marriage to God, our relationship with God was based on works, would we be divorced? Absolutely. And that's the point. But... God promises that Israel will not be ultimately cast off because God's going to make a new covenant with them. And that new covenant is not based on works like the covenant of Moses. That covenant is based on grace, the new covenant. And so God is going to restore his people Israel, as we already see him doing now. And they were never fully cast off. I mean, Israel was preserved all throughout the 2000 uh, years between Christ going back up to heaven and us today. And uh, we see them established as a political entity, and we see Messianic con congregations growing and more people getting saved. And this is all evidence that God's keeping his promise. But ultimately, Israel as the bride points to the church as the bride of Christ. And Israel as the firstborn, the firstborn child of God, son of God, points to the church. And in Hebrews 12, the church is called the assembly of the firstborn. And so is that exclusively talking about ethnic Jews? No, that's talking about the church in which there is neither Jew nor Gentile, right? And so Israel points to the church. And also uh, Israel points to the church not just being saved and preserved, but Israel also points to the church 
and eternal rewards. Now, there are lots of different discussions about this, but if you look at these passages of Scripture in Genesis, in Genesis 15, you look up here on the slide, Genesis 15, 7 through 21, it depicts the unconditional nature of God's covenant with Abraham. God has Abraham divide up these animals. It's pretty bloody business. And Abraham has a deep sleep come upon him, and he has a vision. And God, in the form of a burning lamp, passes through these divided offerings. And back in the day, if you were making a covenant with somebody, both people would pass through those divided offerings, okay? Because you were basically saying, my life is on the line if I fail to keep my promise, okay? If I fail to keep my end of the covenant or bargain, then let this happen to me. Let my blood be shed in this way. So a very powerful way of making a promise, more than just spitting on your hand and shaking with somebody. I mean, it's pretty serious stuff. But Abraham does not walk through. God literally incapacitates Abraham a deep sleep coming upon him, and Abraham sees God going through. God saying, I'm going to keep this. It's not based on you, Abraham. It's based on me. And in the same exact passage of Scripture in Genesis 15, we have that famous verse that Abraham was accounted righteous in the eyes of God through faith because he believed God. And it was credited to him righteousness. And so that whole passage is about grace through faith, grace through faith. And God's keeping that unconditional covenant with Israel even today. But it also pictures this Abrahamic covenant in chapter 22 of Genesis. It pictures the overcoming nature of Christians. The Bible does distinguish between Christians who are overcomers in a practical sense in their life, faithfully serving the Lord, and Christians who are not doing so. These would be carnal believers, the spiritual and the carnal. That's how Paul would divide it up simply for us. And so in Genesis 22, Abraham has this additional promise made to him, but it's not based on the grace like in, in chapter 15, okay? Or, or not directly based on the grace. It's based on the fact that he was tested and he overcame by expressing faith that I don't know if I would have if I was asked to do the same thing he was, uh, offering up his one and only son, but he had that faith. And in Hebrews 11, he is pictured as one of those overcomers and all of this long line uh, of overcomers that are mentioned his story is singled out because Abraham is given a great reward. And if you read those verses, Genesis 22, uh, 15 through 18, it talks about how all the nations will be blessed in Israel. And it sounds similar to what you'd read in Genesis 12 when it says all the nations will be blessed through your offspring, but it's actually different in the Hebrew. In one case, it's passive, like God saying, no matter what you do, Abraham, I'm going to bless the world through your, your descendants, through your offspring, okay? I'm going to use your, your offspring to bless everybody. And he did that through Jesus, right? But there's another element here. In Genesis 22, it's picturing all the nations in the millennium going up to Israel, and Israel is going to be spiritually blessing people. How will they do that? They're going to teach the nations, the Bible depicts the uh, Israel as being a hub for spiritual learning. The law will go forth from Jerusalem. And so all the nations are going to want to go up to Jerusalem. It's going to be the capital. Okay, You're going to want to get up, get on board with Israel and experience the prosperity that comes through this nation. The spiritual prosperity as people are being taught the word of God and getting saved during the millennium because people will get saved. The people who enter into the millennium and their natural bodies will have children. And these people are going to be learning the word of God. They're going to be going up perhaps on field trips. <laughs> Let's say you're part of 
the nation that lives in England. I don't know if it'll be called England in the millennium, but let's say you live there. You're part of a nation. You're not an Israelite ethnically. You're going to go up just like all the nations. And they're commanded in Zechariah 14 to go up during the Festival of Tabernacles. So we see Israel as being a light to all the nations. Exactly. And that's what Christians are meant to be. We're meant to be a light, but we only do that when we are resisting the flesh and the sin nature that we still have. We're putting off the old man and putting on the new man. And if you do that, like Abraham did, because he's a type of this, if you do that, then you will be greatly rewarded by God. And that's why when we get to the new heaven and the new earth, it's not centered on the old Jerusalem, the earthly Jerusalem. It's the new one, the heavenly one. And instead of the ethnic Israel, the ethnic Israel will no doubt be a part of this eternal kingdom as well. But it's not just Israel is the people of God now. It's all of the nations of those who are saved. They're the people of God. And out of that great congregation of saved people, whether you're Jew or Gentile or whatever, slave free, as Paul said, there are going to be rewards given out at the Bema Seat. So if right now, okay, the rapture happened, all Jews who believe in Jesus will be taken just as all Gentiles who believe in Jesus. Okay, and that's not going to make any difference. God's not going to say to the Jew at the rapture, you get some advantage over the Gentile because you're a Jew. Okay, in the church, there's no differentiation between Jew or Gentile. It has to do with whether or not they did what Christ commanded them as Christians. That's their identity in the church. And so all throughout the millennium, we're, we're seeing a picture of overcoming believers in Israel as that nation reigns over the other nations. But will Israel have that prominence over Gentiles for all eternity? I don't think so. There are some dispensationalists who believe that. I don't believe so because I see a shift. In the millennium, it's the earthly Jerusalem. And it's different than the new Jerusalem. Why the difference? Because the earthly was always a type of the heavenly. Just as Matt taught on the tabernacle. The earthly tabernacle is a type of the heavenly tabernacle. And while the, on the earth, the Jews, they were given that special access. God didn't give tabernacles to all the other nations. He gave the tabernacle to Israel. Um, in heaven, all believers have access to that tabernacle, don't they? And so Israel is a type of the church in salvation, in overcoming. And that's why I think it's so important for Christians to be on the side of Israel. Because if you are recognizing God blessing this country then because this country represents you, I think that to be consistent, we would have to say that God has to bless Israel if he's to bless us because Israel was always meant to be a picture of us. So we'll talk more about Israel as a type later on, uh, but that is the nature of the millennium. Promises are fulfilled to earthly Jerusalem and that's going to segue into Revelation 21 where we see the heavenly Jerusalem. So we'll talk more about that next time. Thank you so much for listening and, and thank you all in this room for listening as well.